And I think that's uh, the beauty of this moment is that people are realizing that out of this pain, out of this trauma, um, that, you know, there are opportunities for us to really begin to fix many of the problems of the past, but also to build a much brighter future where everybody has an opportunity to thrive. Deep-seated issues of racial injustice have been brought to the fore in recent weeks by a series of nationwide protests against police brutality. These protests are taking place in the midst of a global pandemic, which has exposed and in many cases worsened long-standing issues of racial inequality. The energy and climate space is not immune to racial discrimination. But some politicians have questioned whether this is the right moment to talk about things like pollution while others have begun to pivot the conversation to solutions. We discuss this and more with longtime environmental justice advocate Mustafa Santiago Ali on this episode of Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, host and producer of Political Climate, contributing editor at Green Tech Media, and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. This week, it's just me, but my Democrat and Republican co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbut and Shane Skelton, will be back next episode. Mustafa Santiago Ali has been on the front lines of the fight for environmental justice since the age of 16. That's when he joined the Environmental Protection Agency as a student and became a founding member of the EPA's Office of Environmental Justice. Mustafa worked at the EPA for 24 years prior to joining the Hip Hop Caucus, a national nonprofit and nonpartisan organization that connects the hip hop community to the civic process to build power and create positive change. Today, Mustafa is Vice President of Environmental Justice, Climate, and Community Revitalization for the National Wildlife Federation. He's also the founder of Revitalization Strategies, a business focused on moving vulnerable communities from surviving to thriving. On Tuesday this week, Mustafa testified before the House Energy and Commerce Committee on the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on frontline communities. And he was gracious enough to hop on the phone with me shortly after completing the nearly three-hour virtual hearing. In this conversation, Mustafa connects the dots between clean air and affordable energy to the roots of today's social justice movement. We also discuss the implications of recent environmental law rollbacks by the Trump administration. We take a hard look at what the clean energy industry must do to promote greater diversity. And we discuss Republican approaches to combating inequality, teeing off of comments made by Representatives John Shimkus and David McKinley at this week's hearing. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Mustafa. Hi, Mustafa. Thank you for joining me on Political Climate today, especially since you just finished giving testimony. Thank you for having me. So you testified today at a hearing entitled Pollution and Pandemics, COVID-19's Disproportionate Impact on Environmental Justice Communities, which took place against the backdrop, of course, of George Floyd's tragic death and amid these historic protests over injustices faced by Blacks and other minorities. In your testimony today, you said, when we say I can't breathe, we literally mean can't breathe. Can you just start by explaining what exactly you meant by that? Yeah, so, you know, there's a lot of attention right now you know, on the fact that there are some policemen, you know, who have taken the lives 
of African-Americans, and of course there are other people of color also that that's happened to, whether you look at Eric Garner in New York when he was asphyxiated um, and lost his life, um, and then most recently with George Floyd um, with the asphyxiation that happened because, you know, a police officer literally put his knee on his neck, um, you know, for eight point eight minutes and 49 seconds. Um, but also that in communities of color, you know, folks are literally dying for a breath of fresh air. You know, we got 100,000 people in this country who die prematurely from air pollution every year. And we know that disproportionately it is African-Americans and Latinx folks, you know, who um, are the ones who are being located closest to these polluting facilities that are, you know, unfortunately causing chronic medical conditions, everything from liver and kidney disease, lung diseases, um, you know, heart disease, and uh, even cancer, you know, cancer clusters, um, and the pollution that's coming out of these plants um, far too often is literally taking people's breath away. And then we overlay that by the fact that there's this triple whammy that's currently going on in communities that, you know, when you have those chronic medical conditions, it makes you more vulnerable uh, to the coronavirus, to COVID-19. Um, so folks are literally dying also um, for a breath of fresh air because we know that the coronavirus, of course, is an airborne virus. It, it impacts the lungs um, and some other body parts as well. Uh, but, you know, many of the impacts folks have been focusing on is, you know, how it literally strangles uh, the person who, you know, gets it really bad. And you end up on respirators lots of times. And once that happens, um, you know, the odds of you getting off of that, unfortunately, are slim. So, you know, the loss of life, the loss of breath um, comes in uh, our communities in a number of different forms and fashions. So to drill down on that a little further, uh, President Trump recently issued an executive order to stop enforcing environmental laws amid the coronavirus pandemic, and it's uh, been labeled as a bid to boost the economy and bring back jobs. Uh, you said this will disproportionately hurt communities of color. Describe the real world implications of these environmental rollbacks and in as specific terms as you can. What do they really mean? Yeah, whether we're looking at the Clean Power Plan, you know, which they, um, you know, rolled back, or if we're talking about the Clean Car Rule, um, or even if we're talking about NEPA, um, the National Environmental Policy Act, you know, all of these and many of the other pieces of legislation, well, not just legislation, but, you know, actually these laws that we have um, have been put in place to actually protect folks. So when you roll these back or even weaken them, then you're putting more people's lives in danger. So, you know, it's really mind-blowing when you have an administration who is not doing everything they can to strengthen protections. I mean, you have a responsibility. You're using people's tax dollars. At the same time, you're, you're poisoning them more, um, you know, which makes no sense whatsoever. And you see it play out in all kinds of communities, both rural and urban communities across our country. You know, in the Manchester community in Houston, Texas, when you go there, if you roll down the windows of your car, you feel like you're breathing in gasoline fumes because of all the emissions that are being uh, released. Um, you know, if you go up the, the coast a little bit to places like Corpus Christi um, or Port Arthur, Texas, um, you know, you have a very similar dynamic where people are dealing with all of these diseases of both the eyes and lungs um, and, and other body parts. 
that are directly connected to emissions that are coming out of the plants. If you go to the 48217, which is the most polluted zip code in Michigan, is right there um, in Detroit. And, and, you know, when kids grow up in these communities, when they look out their window, when I was growing up, when I looked out my window, I saw trees and I, and I saw greenery. Um, but many of these kids, what they see is the piping from the plants. Uh, and they also can't go outside um, and play because of this huge amounts of emissions that are going on. Um, so they never get a chance to really fully, you know, grow up the way many other kids do across our country. And all of this is tied back to, you know, uh, the actions that have been going on by our current administration uh, to roll back basic protections. If you look in communities of color and lower wealth communities um, and on indigenous lands, you know, many of the protections that we've had in place have not been protective enough. So for someone to further exacerbate uh, the impacts that are going on by, you know, rolling back, um, for me, is egregious, um, and there should be some culpability uh, in the lives that are being lost. I want to raise some of the points that Republican Congress uh, people mentioned in the hearing that you attended today, that you spoke at today. Uh, one of the points was that the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, uh, helped one community, a poor community in the West, get a utility infrastructure that was much needed after a three-year delay. So the case was basically being made that rolling that back uh, was necessary to get this essential service. Are there examples like that where rollbacks make sense? I know some renewable energy companies even came out in support of the rollback, saying it will make it easier for them to deploy, say, offshore wind projects. So is there any case in which a rollback works? Well, I think that every um, you know law and statute and regulation that we have needs to be reviewed um, because sometimes you know they may be 20, 30, 40 years old. So yes, we should always be reviewing them and figuring out how we make them stronger and better and more effective. And when we don't do that, I think we're doing a disservice. But you know, it's always interesting that we will uh, identify the outliers. And we never talk about the real totality of what is actually going on. So when you begin to weaken NEPA, you're also beginning to weaken people's opportunity to engage in the process. And we know that, you know, the National Environmental Policy Act plays a role not only in, you know, on the industry side, but also lots of other types of building that happens. And in that building, there can be significant impacts that happen to the communities that are located um, in that respective area. Um, so, you know, we have to make sure that, you know, when we're looking at vulnerable communities, that they actually have a strong voice, both in the analysis side, but in the development side. And you did not hear um, in the hearing today, uh, you know, folks who were sitting on that side of the aisle saying that we need to make sure that people's voices are playing a stronger role. or that we need to make sure that the public health of individuals um, is being uh, protected um, as we are also trying to move forward with, you know, uh, additional opportun economic opportunities. And, and that's the disservice that folks do lots of times is that they don't talk about the public health impact, but they will talk about the perceived economic impacts, but then they never talk about well, how many people are actually getting the jobs in these new sets of uh, either existing uh, or new opportunities that are communities of color 
uh, or folks from lower wealth communities. Um, and uh, that usually sends a very clear message that this is about more about profit over people uh, than people uh, being protected and then making profit. I'd like to ask about the jobs aspect, uh, but specifically with a clean energy lens. We had a local leader in the Chicago area, Naomi Davis with Blacks and Green, talk about the experience of forming the 2016 Future Energy Jobs Act there. And communities of color finally got a seat at the table, as she described it, even having to sort of push back against some of the predominantly white energy and environmental groups to have their voices heard. But Naomi and her colleagues eventually secured funding for a solar workforce training program that is specifically intended to serve lower income communities of color. So my question to you is, what other examples are there out there like that? Um, maybe first frame the issue of, you know, including people of color in the clean energy transition, because I think we have to be honest that there's a lack of uh, inclusivity there. But then also, are there other examples you'd point to of success of, of getting people to have, you know, not just healthier communities, but also wealthier communities stemming from this? Oh, without a doubt. So yeah, you know, I believe in real talk. So real talk is that uh, the clean energy space has a lot of work to do to make sure that they are honoring diversity um, and, you know, and that they are giving full rights to workers as well. Um, and we, you know, we have to just continue to push on that and make sure that that actually happens. Um, but there is, a, you know, a wealth of opportunities uh, in the clean energy space um, to make sure that, you know, we're creating more than just livable wage jobs um, and that, we're also helping those communities who have often been unseen and unheard um, be able to play a role in that process. And there are a lot of frontline communities who are already moving in that space. I mean, if you look at, there's a young man by the name of Gilbert Campbell came out of Howard University who created Volt Energy. Um, there's another incredible energy company called Imani Energy. Both of those are led by men of color um, that are creating uh, both opportunities, economic opportunities, job opportunities um, in, in a number of different areas. Um, but they're also, you know, because they are clean energy, they're lowering the emissions um, that are one playing a role in the impacts that are happening in communities of color and also uh, playing a role in the warming up of our oceans and our planet. You look at the work of Reverend Leo Woodbury uh, down in Florence, South Carolina, has uh, trained over 100 people uh, in the solar space, um, who now, you know, some have their own businesses, others are out working um, in, in that, um, you know, in that respective industry. Uh, you have folks like Harold Mitchell in Spartanburg, South Carolina, uh, with the Regenesis Project that I mentioned today in the hearing, um, you know, where they took a $20,000 environmental justice small grant and now leveraged it into $300 million in changes. And those changes are new housing, um, green, housing that actually lowers emissions. Folks in the community and the old housing they were living in were paying three to $400 a month for their electricity costs. We got this new energy efficient housing that they're now paying $67 a month, which is huge for folks who are living on fixed incomes. You know, they also have gotten new community centers where seniors and young people come together and there are other training programs that happen there. Um, they built five new healthcare centers in an area that was a health desert, and people are local people are working there. The health facilities are energy efficient, um, and they're also meeting the healthcare needs that exist. So those are just a few of the examples. But we also 
have conversations many times just about solar. Sometimes we move into wind, but there are a number of other uh, aspects that can be a part of our clean economy. You know, both uh, wind and solar that we mentioned, but also thermal and tidal and the technicians that are necessary, you know, to keep all of those respective systems going, uh, along with our grid. And we know all the various new opportunities that exist around the grid uh, and other sorts of transportation opportunities that are literally right here at our fingertips. But what I also try and help people to always also understand in relationship uh, to the jobs that are created is that we also got to have folks who are building all these things. And there are huge, huge opportunities that exist around advanced manufacturing. It's always interesting when I drive home to Appalachia, I leave through Western Maryland. And right before I go into West Virginia, if you look up on the mountainside, you'll see these huge uh, windmills that are there. And there are literally thousands of parts that are, uh, you know, that are a part of the design uh, of them. And those have to be created somewhere. And it's always interesting when I go right across the border um, back into West Virginia, and I always ask folks, you know, why don't we have these advanced manufacturing opportunities here in a state that has incredible folks who are just brilliant with their minds and their hands, you know, who have worked in all these industries that are now fading away. And we should be making sure that these new sets of 21st century economic opportunities are in places like Appalachia, that are in the Rust Belt, that are on the Gulf Coast. Um, so that workers have the opportunity to have truly have a just transition uh, and where they can continue with a similar lifestyle or even a better lifestyle, because not only are they being able to make, you know, a good living, but they also don't have to worry about, you know, the industries that they're in impacting their children and their children's children. Yeah. Do you happen to know if the industry is stepping up with things like using the Cal Enviro screen to put these technologies in communities that need them. I know there is a bit of a narrative around, you know, these technologies, say home energy storage and solar are expensive and they're not really benefiting the communities that could need them the most. Are you seeing efforts like mapping communities of need um, to where these technologies ultimately get deployed? Is that happening? I see it, but it's on a very limited scale. And I think that that's a part of the evolution that needs to happen. So, you know, as we've been talking here today, you know, we know the communities that have been carrying the burden, right, uh, from the impacts that have happened from fossil fuels and, and, and from other toxic emissions. We should also be very focused, laser focused uh, on mapping out you know, this new sets of opportunities and figuring out how best to make that happen for folks. And yes, you know, cost sometimes can be uh, a bit of a burden uh, for a number of communities. But, you know, we're in a moment right now where we're literally spending trillions of dollars in the COVID-19 moment. And we know that we're going to be spending a few additional trillion dollars um, and helping to get people back to work and helping to build infrastructure uh, along with, you know, dealing with, you know, the impacts that are co go currently going on from the coronavirus. So as we are redirecting resources, we should be focusing on these communities in, in the form and fashion that we're just discussing. I'd like to ask you a sort of pricklier question, but it stemmed from the hearing this morning. Um, and it was a related to linking environmental justice issues and racial justice issues together. 
Uh, Congressman David McKinley of West Virginia said that linking these two topics is basically a political move by the left. And he used the experience of Welsh, West Virginia, a town of about 2,000 people in McDowell County that's known as the service center for coal mining in the region to illustrate his point. Here's a clip of what he said, starting with how COVID-19 has hit the town's economy. This lack of jobs has led McDowell County to having the highest drug overdose rate among all the the counties in America. In a conversation with the mayor of Welch last week, he implied that the repercussions of COVID create short-term problems, but the anti-fossil fuel agenda from the left is a long-term threat for communities like Welch and would completely destroy the economy of the city of Welch and the entire region. So Mr. Chairman, tying air pollution to COVID-19, really, seriously, it is a simplistic answer to complicated, to a complicated question. Once again, you are, are taking advantage of a public health crisis to justify your party's agenda against fossil fuels. So you can hear in his position there that linking environmental justice, environmental issues, and racial justice together, along with coronavirus, is something that he thinks the left is doing to villainize fossil fuels. And this actually isn't just an issue for Republicans in Congress. Interestingly, I even saw Mary Nichols, California's chief air regulator, delete a tweet, according to Politico, uh, that talked about environmental racism and it being toxic and then talking about clean air. Um, She faced pushback from even another Democratic member of of Assemblyman here in California, saying she was trying to push an agenda on climate and clean energy in the middle of this other crisis. Is it wrong to link these things in any way, or at least at this time? No, I don't think so at all. I mean, environmental justice came out of the fact that many of the conservation organizations and other environmental organizations at that time um, did not allow for there to be a seat at the table by frontline communities and the issues that they were raising in their environments. So there is a racial component Uh, that has always been a part of this. And then we also understand that there is, you know, unfortunately, a a history in our country of decision-making that was based on race. Um, So, you know, we know that many of the communities uh, have been pushed through redlining and restrictive covenances into certain areas. And once in those areas, there was disinvestment. Uh, in those areas and and moving resources to other communities that um, were not uh, folks of color. Uh, In the housing context, we know how laws had been used um, to create healthy housing in certain communities and areas and how others were neglected or banned from the utilization of those federal uh, tax dollars, Um, you know, uh, or transportation routes, literally highways and, and roads used to break communities up um, to, you know, move wealth into other communities and dump off pollution in other communities. And much of that, you know, unfortunately in the past was, you know, uh, through a racial lens, even in the funding from banks. um, Certain communities were not allowed access to capital. So all of that created these situations where we have these sacrifice zones Uh, the dumping grounds where we place everything that no one else wants. So, you know, with all due respect to 
uh, the representative from West Virginia. Um, I would have hoped that he would have actually been very mindful of the fact when he talked about, you know, the high unemployment that is in Welch, West Virginia, and of course, across the state. The fact that we've been banning lots of new types of economic opportunities uh, from moving into the state. Uh, and that's unfortunate because as he shared, and rightly so, you know, when folks, you know, unfortunately are unemployed or can't find a job, lots of times people will medicate and they will medicate with whether it's alcohol or he was talking about the opioid epidemic. And he was very, that was very truthful um, that, you know, folks will medicate in those situations. They want to escape. They want to escape the hopelessness. Well, if you want to escape the hopelessness, then politicians should be thinking critically about, so what are the jobs that are the fastest growing? And how do I attract some of those to my area? Um, and when, unfortunately, you have an antiquated way of thinking, then you put the folks that you were supposed to help protect and lift up uh, in a very tough situation. How do you think you get over the politicization of this? You know, you just cited history and sort of a record of of racial racist practices. And yet filtered through the current lens and economic tensions, it becomes described as a tool by the left to talk about environmental justice. Is there any way in your mind you can try and strip out some of the politicized language? And to be clear, I don't mean you personally. I mean, how do you see stakeholders in general moving past these talking points? Well, most definitely. You know, it has been lots of others uh, who have tried to politicize. There's no way in the world that we should ever be politicizing clean air and clean water and clean land. You know, it it is a basic need for every human uh, who is on this planet. And... You know, unfortunately, we have allowed uh, money to play a huge role in our political system, and that money comes from somewhere. Um, So there have been those who wanted to benefit, so they pumped huge amounts of money into one side of the equation, um, and that's how you get that, uh, you know, that polarization and the politicalization of some of these issues that it it should never be that way. Um, And, you know, the interesting thing is the moment that we're in. So many folks, especially younger people, are refusing to deal with the old uh, isms that have anchored our parents and grandparents for so long. Ageism, sexism, racism, all these types of things that, you know, younger people are, are just refusing. And that's why you see in the marches and the protests that are going on, very multiracial. Um, and, you know, they are all very focused on the fact that we cannot continue to make the same mistakes that we did of the past. Um, and that they are going to force um, a culture shift, which is already happening. Um, and and really trying to be much more inclusive and making sure that equity uh, is a part of all of our lives. And, you know, the end to whatever level of racism and discrimination that still exists, that it has no place in 21st century America. 
I have two last questions for you. Uh, First, I wanted to quickly address opportunity zones because this is another issue that came up in your hearing today. Opportunity zones, for anyone who doesn't know, were created as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 and designed to help, uh, you know, bring investments to lower income areas. But it's also been criticized as a way for large real estate companies to take advantage of of this vehicle and and invest in, in communities and ultimately gentrify them. Um, there were some stats mentioned at the at the hearing talking about the benefits for lower income communities and communities of color. I'm wondering what your thought is on opportunity zones. I bring this up because Representative Shimkus, a Republican from Illinois, pointed to opportunity zones as a way of creating jobs and suggested the best way to overcome racial inequality is to have a strong economy and more jobs available for everyone. This single statement, I think, says a fair bit about how Republicans are viewing this issue right now. So here's a clip which also features a response from witness Shay Hawkins, president of the Opportunity Funds Association. Trying to address the debate about how you rise people up, the best way to do that is jobs, empowering them. Then they can pay taxes to local community and and economic development, uh, and that's been our approach. So as much as we want to take time about um, our, our failures in the past, I do think we should take a time out and say the Opportunity Zones uh, legislation in HR 1, married with brownfield redevelopment, is doing a lot to help these communities. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. There are, there are a lot of problems that can be solved with a good job, problems that affect all of us. And so the, the, the goal of the policy is that everyone who has the ability to work have the opportunity to work. So Mustafa, what are your thoughts on opportunity zones? And what do you make of the assertion that jobs are really at the core of today's inequity issues? Well, you know, first, let's be very clear that in the environmental justice movement, folks have never been against jobs uh, or economic opportunities. What folks have always said is that we want to have industries and businesses that are not going to impact our health. So in relationship to the opportunity zones, you know, one question, of course, is, you know, because there's two parts to it, you know, on the real estate side, is there going to be enhanced gentrification from what's going on? Secondly, let's look at the numbers. How many people of color have actually been hired as a result of, you know, these businesses that are going on uh, inside of these communities. And I've never yet, and I've been around a number of Opportunity Zone conversations. The White House has invited me to listen listen in, and and I've sat down with others. And when I asked the question, well, okay, so how many folks is, is this helping to uplift? Not the areas. People will also talk about the areas, but that does not necessarily mean that the people who live there are benefiting. If they are, let's unpack that and let's see exactly what that looks like. And if it is something that's working, then let's figure out how it also continues to merge with what frontline communities and others are actually asking for. But when you pose that question, you just don't seem to get a lot of hard facts um, in relationship to that. The other side of the coin is, you know, business and industries, whether they might be uh, in the fossil fuel space or other spaces, you know, you have to ask the question, you know, are these going to cause additional impacts in the communities? The other part of it is what role are local communities, uh, frontline communities 
playing in the decision making about uh, what's coming into their communities. Um, and, and those are important questions. And I think that most level-minded folks would say those are fair questions uh, to be answered, especially if you're going into areas where they're already overburdened by a number of negatives. I think we should all agree that we don't want to add any additional negatives. Finally, just on a personal note, I'm, I'm curious if, um, you know, the world's the world really being opened up to the trauma that um, black Americans have been living with for generations. And I'm wondering if in this moment that pain is coming to the fore. We did just witness a terrible uh, death. And if that's kind of what you think people need to sit with right now? Or is this also an optimistic moment? I'm wondering how we're, what you think about um, assessing this current situation, assessing this moment, and what to sort of do with that energy to really be productive going forward. Well, first of all, of course, I support uh, the peaceful protests that have been going on because protests are necessary to bring attention and to highlight uh, injustices that happen. But we also then have to focus our energy uh, into the strategies, uh, into the legislation um, that's going to be critical in helping us to make sure that we are addressing these past and present impacts that continue to happen. Some of them, you know, just real talk from systemic racism and from other elements. And then, of course, the third part of that is that we have to utilize our vote. We have to get engaged in the civic process. We have to get educated. Um, and then, you know, we also have to find folks that we feel, you know, care about our communities. And if we can't find someone, then many folks are gonna have to run for office themselves. And that will be on the local level, on the county level, on the state level, and of course, on the federal level. And I think that's uh, the beauty of this moment is that people are realizing that out of this pain, out of this trauma, um, that, you know, there are opportunities for us to really begin to fix many of the problems of the past, but also to build a much brighter future where everybody has an opportunity to thrive. Mustafa, thank you so very much for your time. Thank you and, and continue to highlight and put a spotlight on the things that need some sunlight. Well, that is my interview with Mustafa Santiago Ali at the National Wildlife Federation. Speaking of sunlight, I hope you find a little bit to brighten your day over the next week. I'll be back with Brandon and Shane on our next episode. In the meantime, please review Political Climate on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you like to listen. It really helps us grow our audience and reach more people and bring you more great content. Thanks so much. Until soon. Until soon.